If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to welcome those of you that are visiting. Glad to see you. It's a beautiful day. Yesterday, we were talking with a sister in the Lord, and she said, I joined this prayer group, and they sent me a list of people to pray for, but that was it, just a list of names. And she said, I don't really know how to pray for someone if all I have is their name. And I said, yeah, it kind of makes you feel like you just go, Lord, be with them. And that is indicative of perhaps what many Christians struggle with when it comes to what we call the ministry of intercession. So when you become a Christian, we learn how to pray. And it's not something that's just intuitive. We need to be taught from the scriptures. And there, pr prayer is something that is both you can learn in your head and then experientially you, you learn by practice. Even Jesus' disciples, as they watched him pray, eventually they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And so there's a lot of components to prayer. And obviously, as Benjamin pointed out this morning, there's gratitude, there's confessing our sins. But one of the significant pieces of prayer is learning how to intercede for others, how to pray for others. And the best way to learn how to do that is not by listening to others but by looking at the prayers that God has given us in the New Testament. So this morning we have the privilege of looking at an amazing prayer that I hope will do many things in our lives. Jumpstart our prayer life, teach us how to pray more effectively, create within us a desire to learn other prayers that Paul prays. So as we begin, let's start by asking God, let's pray that he will speak to us as we look at this prayer. Father, thank you so much that your word is alive, it's powerful, it's good. And we pray that your word will teach us how to communicate with you better, with gratefulness, how to pray for others, how to mature as Christians. We totally need you, Lord, and we ask in faith that Jesus will speak to us and that he will open our eyes. And if there's people here that don't yet know Christ, he'll open their eyes to salvation. But as Christians, that he'll more deeply teach us, Lord, and actually change us so that we become more effective, more engaged, more fruitful in our prayer lives. We pray for the glory of our Savior, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Now, we're in a study of the book of Ephesians, and we're talking about unity in the body of Christ. And the last few weeks we've been looking at the blessings that the Lord has given us. In fact, we might call verses 3 through 14 a giant benediction because it starts out with praise God. We should praise God. And we said, like Scrooge McDuck, we should review and think about our spiritual blessings. I've been chosen. I've been adopted. I've been forgiven. I've been, last week we saw that God has given us revelation in the knowledge of him. We saw that he has made us his inheritance. And finally, that he gave us a great assurance. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. But now Paul transitions and he shows that having these blessings, he's going to pray, he's going to intercede. There's a connection. He's going to say, it's one thing to have them. It's another thing to know and experience them. 
Maybe an illustration, something like this. We've all seen, perhaps, if there was nothing else on television and you were just glancing through the Antique Roadshow. And I know you didn't watch the whole episode, but maybe just happened to see it for a moment and somebody brings a little vase and they say, hey, I got this at a yard sale. And the guy goes, do you realize that's from the Ming Dynasty? That's worth a million dollars. It was right before someone's eyes and they didn't realize the value of it. So what Paul teaches us here is that we need to pray for spiritual insight regularly so that we can see those things that left to ourselves, we would totally be walking by sight. So let's read the prayer and then we'll come back and, and go through it. Paul says in verse 15, for this reason that God has blessed you so much, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and and your love for all the saints. In other words, having heard of your conversion and how God's at work in your lives, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Now again, think about this. Suppose someone says to you, I'm praying for you. You, you would probably go, what are you praying? Okay, so let's look at what he prays because we're going to learn from this. He says, I'm praying, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And also, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And I'm praying that you might know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So let's go back and say, all right, so what can I learn from this? Well, first of all, in its broadest sense, and you know this, but we need to constantly remind ourselves, we should always have thanksgiving when we pray. So many passages when they talk about prayer will say, be anxious for nothing but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6. Colossians 4, 2 says, devote yourself to prayer. Keep alert in it with thanksgiving. I mean, that, that's just a constant. We should always take time to praise God, not just for our physical blessings, like, Lord, thank you for our health, just like Benjamin mentioned, but also for our spiritual blessings. But then as we direct our prayers specifically for others, we really can pray better instead of saying, Lord, be with the kids, all right? So let's look first of all at, at, the, at the broad uh, request that Paul makes. He says, I pray to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So pay attention when, when an author addresses God in prayer. Just, just make note of that. When you talk to God, don't limit yourself to, to calling him the same thing every time. It's not that it's wrong, but biblically so often, even Jesus, he would say, Abba, Father, Holy Father. 
He told us to say, Our Father. Daniel said, O God who dwells between the cherubim. This time, Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father of the Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, the glorious Father. So, so enliven your prayers by ascribing praise to God. Thank him for who he is. Think of, think of one of his attributes, Almighty God, Holy Father, loving Father. So he addresses this prayer, and then he says this, I ask him to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. One of the things that's really interesting is that almost every one of Paul's prayers for other Christians is for an increasing knowledge, okay? In Colossians chapter 1, he says, I pray that God will fill you with the knowledge of his will. In Philippians chapter 1, he says, I pray that your love will abound in knowledge and discernment. So, as you're praying for other Christians, pray that they will increase in spiritual knowledge, okay? Not just academics, like did they read a theology book, but that they would truly increase in a deeper understanding of their Christian faith. C.S. Lewis once said that Christianity is not little boys' religion. It has content. And often people who are Christians remain at this very rudimentary baby level where the Bible talks about them only being able to have the milk of the word. They don't mature in knowledge and understanding. Now, as we're praying that, let's bear in mind that that's not going to happen just by osmosis, okay? God wants people to grow in their knowledge, and we need to pray for that. But how are we going to grow in our knowledge? You and I need to pick up books and read. You and I need to, if you don't like to read, get on computer and listen or watch videos or somehow study, be engaged in the Word of God. So there's a balance here. Paul's emphasis in other passages is to challenge people to study and be diligent to get into the Word. He'll say, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. But here, he's praying for a deeper knowledge. Okay, so just, just think about that as you're praying for your kids. Lord, deepen their knowledge of you and of the word of God and of your will. Because as we have a greater knowledge of scripture, we make better decisions. Or at least we have the potential to do that. So many things in life are not black and white. So pr Paul prayed in, in Philippians 1 that your love will abound in knowledge so that you can you can approve the things that are excellent. You see, a maturing Christian is not someone who goes, tell me all the rules. Don't do this, don't do that. The Bible says a mature Christian, Hebrews 5, who through practice in the word has their senses trained to discern good and evil. That doesn't happen by osmosis. That happens as we prayerfully engage people and they're reading and they're thinking and they're growing and they're, and they're learning. You see, we all have the mind of Christ. But having the mind of Christ, we have to walk in the Spirit and pray for a growing knowledge of God and His Word so that we can then use the mind of Christ to the Word as our knowledge is growing to make good decisions, to give good advice. Paul said, unbelievers, 1 Corinthians 2, to them, spiritual things are foolishness, 
But to us who are being saved, they're the power of God because we have the spirit. And he says, he who is spiritual is able to examine and appraise all things. So, broadest thing, when you're praying for people, always add in there that they will increase. And you can pray. By the way, you're allowed to pray that for yourself too. right? I always take these prayers and I start right here because what's the point of praying for others if I'm not... But pray that we will grow in a spiritual knowledge. Not proud knowledge, not knowledge that puffs up, but a spiritual knowledge, a discerning knowledge based on learning the word of God. Now, in this case, Paul's going to identify three specifics. These aren't the only areas, but this is a helpful pattern for us. So let's look at what he says. He says, number one, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, it's unfortunate. I, I don't think that's probably the best translation because, and some translations are different, but, but literally in the original language, it says this, the eyes of your heart have already been enlightened. Okay? So, so I know we, we get a song from this, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Technically, if you're a Christian, he already did. <laughs> that's the point here. To become a Christian, the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. So what Paul's saying is, now that the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, I'm praying that God will give you an increasing, growing knowledge of him. So, so when you become a Christian, it's the first time you meet Jesus. But now, through my life, I'm growing in my knowledge of him. It's deepening, it's broadening, it's widening. So... Because the eyes of our heart have been enlightened, we're asking God to give us a greater knowledge. Number one, he says, I want you to know what is the hope of his calling. You say, well, what in the world is that? Well, let's start. And again, this is how you're growing in knowledge. Christians should know what the Bible means when it talks about your calling. Okay? There's a very specific term that's used in the Bible when God summons people to himself in a way that they respond. That's called your calling, okay? There's a general call in which creation and, and the gospel is going out to all the earth. But there's a specific calling. This is something that only goes out to Christians. Romans chapter 8 says, everyone God calls, he justifies. So, so what the calling here is, it's the means by which God summons you through the gospel. He called you. Paul says in Thessalonians, God chose you from the beginning, but he called you through the gospel. Okay? Now, some theologians call this the irresistible call or the effectual call, but it's simply a term that says, you didn't choose God. He chose you and he called you. So you heard the gospel and you responded. And once you recognize that, like, wow, God called me, then there's this massive amount of information related to the call. I love how John Stott kind of summarizes some of this. He says, God called you into fellowship with Jesus. First Corinthians 1. The Bible says we're called to be saints. We're called with a holy calling. Galatians 5 says we've been called to freedom. Ephesians 4 says, we were called into one body. We were called to enjoy the peace of Christ. Later, when we come to chapter 4, Paul goes, now, now that you get that you're called, walk worthy of your calling. Make God look good because he called you. In fact, 
there's also some other things. Philippians 1, Paul goes, you were, were not only called to believe, but also to suffer. It says in 1 Peter, rather, you were called to suffer following Christ's example. We were called into God's kingdom. Paul speaks of the upward call of God. So, so Paul goes, I pray that you'll know the hope of your calling. Okay? So let me explain what that is. The calling is when God brought you to himself. The hope, though, is then the expectation as we anticipate the fulfillment of this. So think of it this way. When the Bible speaks of hope, right, it's very different from the English word hope. English hope. What are you getting for your birthday? I hope I'll get a bike. That's, that's the furthest thing from what the Bible teaches about Christian hope. Hope in the Bible is absolute confidence, but it hasn't happened yet, so we call it a confident expectation. So, for example, when someone's looking forward to their, to their wedding day, they're already engaged, everything's in place, they don't go, I hope I'm getting married, right? Now, of course, we know something could happen, right? But in general, they're, they're just, they know it's going to happen. They already have the date on, there's 29 days, they're just excited about it. They're eagerly anticipating it. And so Paul says, I pray that as you, you grasp your calling, that you will anticipate and enjoy the fact that God has called you. In other words, that you will take joy and comfort in this calling. So for example, here's where the rubber meets the road. Recently, I was just talking to someone who lost a loved one. What sustains you when you lose a loved one? The hope of your calling. The hope that I'm going to see them again if they're a Christian. The hope that this life is not it. See, so much goes on in our lives that C.S. Lewis said this. He goes, sometimes our hope, like snow, gets plowed under. So who do you think is most eager, most excited about being called to God and, and looking forward to his kingdom? People who are suffering, Christians who are going through a hard time. But when we're comfortable, we're like, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven, but, but what time are the eagles playing, right? So God says, I pray that you will, that you will know the hope of your calling so that, so that we will be grateful that God called us and that we will be eagerly looking forward to when we enter into his kingdom. But there's a second thing. He says, I also pray, verse 18, that you will know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance among the saints. Now, there's a couple things to think about there. Earlier we said in, in, in the passage that mentioned the inheritance, it could be translated, he made us his inheritance or he gave us an inheritance. Probably here I think he's thinking of our future inheritance. Okay? Now, notice that it says here, I pray that you will know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in or among the saints. So when we get to glory, it's not going to be a private party. It's not going to be just me and Jesus going, could you show me my mansion? It's going to be this glorious, great party of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The people of God have, has always been a communal experience, not me and Jesus walking side by side. And so Paul says, I pray that God will, will give you a greater 
understanding and insight into this great inheritance that we will enjoy with all of the other saints as, as, we, as we interact with Moses, as, as we meet tribal people from faraway lands and, and, and we all are worshiping and enjoying this glorious kingdom as we sing about the things that we hear about. Remember in Victory in Jesus, I heard about a mansion that is built for me in glory. I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. So let's pray that God, just, just help me to, to not just think about what I can see, but the things that I can't see, what's waiting for me in the future. In fact, a, a really good illustration of this idea of God helping us see what we don't see. Remember the story of Elisha in 2 Kings when, when the, the, the little village he was staying in was surrounded by Syrian soldiers. And they were about to come down and, and, and attack, and they were going to get Elijah and, and, and Elisha and, and kill him and his servant. And his servant comes out and he goes, Master, we're going to die. I picture like Gilligan and Skipper. We're going to die, right? And what does Elijah do? He says, he goes, Lord, open my servant's eyes. Because Elijah sees this army of soldiers, and he's just as calm as can be. You're like... Eliza, why aren't you worried? He goes, Lord, open my servant's eyes. And it says, suddenly, the servant's eyes were open. And he saw all around the mountain chariots of fire. The Lord helped him to see those angelic beings that, that actually went on to blind the Syrian soldiers. And so sometimes we forget, like, Lord, there's another world to come. Help me to see that by faith. But there's a third thing, and to me, this is, is so practical. The third thing he prays that we will truly know better is the surpassing greatness of his power. This is the one that Paul goes, I want to go off on this a little bit. I don't want to just mention it in passing, okay? Now, let's start by understanding that he doesn't just say his power. He says it's the surpassing greatness of his power. Like, what does that even mean? One of the things Paul's, Paul is kind of fumbling over words to try to communicate to us just how powerful God is. So it might be something like this. Think of like the most powerful thing you could think of. Or think of what, what could God do that would be the most powerful thing you could think of? Great in the universe? Nah, that's nothing. Something bigger than that. And then he goes, that's all you got? Because in Ephesians 3, he says, God is so powerful, he's able to do beyond all that we ask or even think right? So, so this great power, but he doesn't just go, I want you to know about God's great power. Notice that it says his great power towards us, okay? So it's not just, quote, pie in the sky, power up there. It's like power that can be downloaded from the giant generator into my puny little experience, and so Paul is overwhelmed by thinking about God's power. So he says, this power, verse 19, is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Now, that's kind of a weird way of saying, let me tell you about this power. One time, God put this power into action. So the word working here literally means to put capabilities into action. It's like God's going, let me just show you a display of my power. And so he unleashes a list of at least three or four things that God did 
which he, verse 20, brought about or displayed in Christ. He says, you want to know how powerful God is? Number one, he raised him from the dead. You're like, well, big deal. Big deal? Big deal? Raised him from the dead? You think all of humanity, if we all put our heads together and all our finances together and all of our resources together, we could come up with that? Opposite of heaven's no. Not a chance. No way. That God could arrest the power of death and decay. And, ra- and he didn't just raise Jesus back into like a corrupting body that was capable of death again. But he raised him with a glorious, incorruptible body of flesh and bones. So number one, that power was, was displayed when he conquered death. But if that's not enough, look at the next verse. He says, not only did he raise him from the dead, but he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, if he just stopped right there, we'd be like, okay, not only did he raise Jesus and conquer this enemy of death, but he took him up to heaven. But his point here isn't just yet that Christ is seated up in heaven, but his point is that all of the evil demons and Satan and the forces of hell were absolutely opposed to that. So in Acts chapter 1, when, when Jesus was taken up, there was a massive resistance to that in the heavenly places. But the Bible says he raised him, look at verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, what are you talking about, Paul? These are terms that are used of angels, rulers, powers, authorities, dominions. And you're like, oh no, Tom, this is talking about heavenly angels. You know, it's just that Jesus gets to sit higher than Gabriel. And I go, well, the problem with that is these same terms are used in chapter 6 when it says we wrestle against rulers and authorities and power and dominion. So God displayed his power by raising Jesus from the dead and then conquering and triumphing and disarming Satan and ascending past Satan and his demons into the heavenly realm. So God whipped death and he whipped Satan and demons. But third, it says, and then he put all things in subjection under his feet. So at this point, he conferred on Jesus an unusual new status. This is why when Jesus came out of the grave in Matthew 28, he said, all authority has been given to me. Everything that's going to take place in the universe comes through me. And that's supposed to be encouraging to us to be like, wow, So right now, sitting at the right hand of God, all things are in subjection under the feet of Jesus. And you go, hmm, well, uh, Jesus, you might want to, like, pay attention down here because I'm not sure I'm seeing that. 
Now, the interesting thing is, what does that mean that he has put all things under his feet? Because in Psalm 110, where, where, where David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put all what? Not all things, all your enemies under your feet. So you go, well, wait a minute. Has Jesus put all his enemies under his feet? You see, we got to go back some to the beginning. In the beginning, when God created Adam, he put all things under his feet. He gave him dominion over the creation. He said, rule it. But when Adam rebelled, the whole thing went kablooey. It's distorted, exploited, polluted. And in rebellion, we were talking about this. So Adam lost the scepter to rule. And the Bible says that Satan now is the God of this world. He, he tempted Jesus. He said, I can give you the dominion of the earth. It's been handed over to me. And I can give it to whoever I wish. But what we learn here is that when Jesus was exalted by the power of God, he brought all things under his feet. Now, we sometimes call this already and not yet. Everything's under his feet. Everything's under his control. But one day, those people and demons that refuse to bow to him, God said in Psalm 2, ask of me, I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. You'll rule them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them in pieces. Reminds me of Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Remember at the end, is he safe? He said, He's good, but he isn't safe. Jesus isn't like JC, the bomb, the little guy up in the sky. He's Lord of all. And one day when he comes back, every single person in rebellion against him will be swept away into the lake of fire. And so what a privilege it is to know that our Lord Jesus, as I, as I walk with him, as, as, as I trust in him to know that, Lord, this country, this pandemic, everything's out of control. He goes, listen, everything's under my feet. But finally, the last thing that God did, not only did he put everything under Jesus' feet, but then it says, and then he gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. This is the first time the word church is mentioned. Like, what did you get for Christmas, church? We got Jesus. <laughs> He gave Jesus to the church, and he says, this is the head, and you guys are the body. Oh, and by the way, let me tell you about your head. All things are under his feet. Oh, thank you, God. Here we are, a bunch of ragtag knuckleheads trying to figure it out, trying to get along, trying to stay together, trying to win people to Christ as we fight against the world, flesh, and the devil. And Jesus goes, all authority is given to me, and I am with you always who's with me not just some guy lord jesus of whom the entire universe is under his feet of whom the entire universe is upheld by the word of his power of whom one day every knee will bow in heaven earth and under the earth thank you god for giving to the church to Riverstone Church, you gave us Jesus to be our head. Not Pastor Tom, Pastor Bob, Pastor John, Pastor Austin, Pastor Jesus is the head of the church. And then he says, 
The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, Jesus fills the body of Christ. He, he, he makes up for our incompleteness. What a blessing to know that here we are, just a bunch of people, but not just people, but part of the body of Christ, individually and corporately, filled with Jesus. Now let's do the math here. If Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and Jesus wants to build his church, and Jesus fills this church, what can this church do for Christ? Oh, I don't know, Tom. The way things are going right now, <laughs> not much. I mean, there's so much opposition. Oh, I'm sorry. What does this verse tell us about, about our Lord and about what he can do? As we do what? As we wring our hands? No, as we believe God and as we intercede. So as we close, ask yourself this question. Do you long for and pray for a deeper revelation of God in your own life? I'm not just talking about, oh, I learned some new theological truth. Do you long for and pray for a deeper revelation of God to know him better in your experience? Now, I'll be the first one to say, I don't always, I don't wake up and do every morning going, more Jesus. You know, I don't even get that song that goes, when morning gilds the skies, my heart awaking. My heart doesn't always awaking cry, may Jesus Christ be praised. It cries like, oh no, I gotta get up, right? <laughs> but even that, we can pray, we can say, God, forgive me for being so dull, so dumb, and so insensitive that I don't even long for the things of Christ. Change my heart. Give me a desire. But God's not going to do that for us. You want to grow in a wisdom and knowledge of Christ? Proverbs chapter 2 says, when you long for it as silver and you search for it as for treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. So let's ask God to, you know, you're kind of like, oh, I'm kind of bored with my devotions. Okay, then be honest. God, I'm bored with my devotions. Forgive my sinful heart. Open my eyes, change my affections so that I'm not checking the box, but I'm going, I want to get with Jesus so I can know him better. Speak to me so that I can sing. And he walks with me and he talks. And I'm riding in my car and I'm sensing the presence of Jesus. Experiential Christianity is allowed. It does not need to be limited to your cerebral cortex. It can be a part of your experience by faith. Don't be ruled by your feelings, but don't limit your longing by faith. So read and pray for a deeper knowledge. And pray that for your kids and your grandkids, not just Jesus help them to be a doctor or Jesus make sure they do good in school or don't let them get the COVID, but also Lord, let them know God. David prayed for Solomon, incline my son's heart to your word. That's what I pray for my kids and grandkids. Draw them deeper. And then secondly, if you're here this morning and you're worried about sin, Satan, or death, all taken care of through that powerful one. And then, two last things. Who are you gratefully interceding for? When you hear of someone getting saved, do you go, that's nice. Or do you go, ever since I heard about your faith, I'm praying for you. And lastly, maybe most practically, if God's power is toward us who believe, think of one area where you go this morning, I need God's power. 
Would you just download me? My next door neighbor has a Generac. You know what they are? When the power goes out, goes right on with gas. I don't have a generator and I don't have gas. But he has a generator, he's got a Generac, and he's got a plug in his backyard right by the fence. And he goes, Tom, come on over and use it. On a vertical level or horizontal level, that's nice to know. But you got a Holy Ghost Generac. What do you need this morning that God's power can intervene and help us with? Amen? Amen. So let's pray. Father, you have spoken to us through your word. We're so grateful that your word is alive. Thank you that you enliven your church, that Jesus is here with us, risen, glorious. Thank you, Father, for all of our spiritual blessings, but by far, hands down, no close second, the real blessing is Jesus. Thank you that you gave him as head over all things to the church. Thank you that we are his body, and we pray that during this blight over America, this pandemic and this political chaos, that you will keep your church together, that the body will not spaz out and fight against one another, but more and more the body might be unified in loving, prayerful cooperation. Father, send revival to America. Spare our nation from your judgment. And may we as Christians hold our head up with eager hope and solid confidence that Jesus is Lord of all. We bless you and praise you, Jesus. We're so grateful for your power and, and your love and your compassion. Save our children. Incline every Christian in this church to grow to maturity. Help us all to study more, pray more, and apply scripture more to our own lives. And we give you glory and pray that you'll make many disciples in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.